Well, hey, White Oak, it's great to have you here with us. And those of you who are out in the crowd, the few of you, we're glad you're here with us as well. In John chapter 13, John chapter 13, Jesus does something that sets a tone for what his followers have to do and are called to do um, until he comes back again one day. Jesus humbly washes his disciples' feet, gets out a basin, he wraps a towel around his waist, and he washes their feet one by one. And then he says something pretty startling right after that. He then sits back down and he tells them that they are to do exactly what it is that he had done for them. In fact, he says he's going to give them a new command that they should love one another. In fact, he says, I'm giving you a new command, love one another. Just as love each other, just as I have loved you, you ought to love one another. And by the love that you have for one another, the world will know that you're my disciples. Now, Jesus says that, and it was startling because he did something so humiliating, so, so, so humbling. But loving each other, hear this, was not a new command. It was actually a very old one. 2,000 years before that, Moses had given it to the Jewish people in Leviticus chapter 19 that they should love their neighbor as themselves. So loving each other was not a new concept. So, so it begs the question, what was Jesus talking about? Was he mistaken? Was he joking? Uh, it wasn't like Jesus was being sarcastic. You know, like, hey, guys, um, here's a novel idea. How about we try loving each other? Like, or like, you know, like when you say to your kids, like I would say to mine, for example, um, hey, guys, why don't we try something new for a change? How about you do what I asked you to do, like as soon as I ask you, instead of three days later, right? If you have kids, you understand that. That's not what Jesus was doing, all right? It wasn't a new concept. But here's what was new is that the people of God have been activated through the power of the Holy Spirit coming into their lives. They've been activated to prove to the world that God was good and that God was love by the way that they treated and interacted with and loved one another. And that was brand new. So here's our big idea for today. Unleash God's movement by praying for one another. Unleash God's movement by praying for one another. Now, we can't possibly talk today about everything that there is to say about prayer in Scripture because there's a lot in there. But here's one thing that we will talk about. We will talk today about the power that is unleashed in our world when we pray for one another. So James chapter 5 sets the table for us really well. So if you have a Bible at home, if you have a Bible app, have that sitting with you. We're going to actually kind of camp out in two different passages today. But I'm going to start out in James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. This is what it says. Is, any, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. See, a form of prayer is singing, and we just did that. So, so we're praying as we're singing songs gathered together, okay? It goes on in verse 14. Is any among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. What James is saying here is, Prayer matters in people's lives. It has impact immediately in our lives, and it has impact in, the lives, uh, uh, in, in our lives for eternity, all right? Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
There's a lot said there about prayer. So let's unpack it just a little bit. Prayer unites people. When we pray for one another, when we pray together, it unites people and unleashes a movement of God in our lives and in the lives of other people. So think about this. When we pray together, when we pray for each other, all right, we are revealing an interdependence that we have with the Father and with one another. When we pray together, it fosters community. Community is a core value here at White Oak, and this is why. Because when we come together, when we pray for one another, it builds community, and faith is supposed to be done in relationship. When we pray for one another, here's something else James is saying. We activate something in the heart of God that moves on behalf of someone else. And we are the ones that begin that process when we pray for one another. There's power in prayer. It's mysterious, but it's real. Now, in our culture, we see, we see a desire for prayer all the time. And we may have mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it, when tragedy happens, and you've seen this on the news, you see TV news anchors, and you see news reporters and TV hosts talk about prayer. When a tragedy happens or something happens in our country, we say we, we want everybody to be praying and we thank people for prayer. TV news anchors even pray live on TV. That's happened recently. You see, there's something built into us, to our hearts, to our minds, to our psyche, that begs us to pray when we feel powerless or helpless or vulnerable. And that's true for all of us. When we see the suffering of other people, somehow, and it really kind of regardless of what we believe about faith, there's something in us when we see suffering or pain. We want to put ourselves aside and we want to lift up other people. There's a desire that stirs in our hearts that begs, is there a God? Is there a God that hears me? And if he does, does he move when I pray? Now, I want to look at um, something that Paul writes. And Paul was, a, was really the first century's greatest church planter. And he writes to the Christians in Rome. And so you're, you were in James chapter 5. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And we're going to hear Paul's take on, on this praying for one another. Here we go, Romans 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And, and that's his way of saying that, that we as, as sons and daughters of God, we are his most prized possession in creation. All right? He says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is, is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. 
Man, there's so much there, and we're not going to be able to talk about it all today. But here's what I do want to talk about. When we talk about praying for one another and unleashing the power of God in other people's lives, what does that look like? And I think Romans chapter 8 gives us three beautiful pieces of information of what that can look like. The first one is this. When you pray for one another, you and I must groan for heaven. It's a weird word when I say we must groan for heaven. But that word pops up there several times, and let me show you why, all right? Paul uses vivid language that says that, the, that, we've, that all creation, all creation, us, nature, has been groaning since the beginning of time in, like change of, like in pains of childbirth. So Paul uses this vivid language to talk about something that's very, very painful. Now, I've never had a child. I've never given birth myself, right? But it, but it is a painful experience. And what Paul's saying is much like that, all right, when, when, when childbirth is happening, it's like, get me through this pain to the beauty and the blessing that's on the other side of it, right? Something that's not yet happened, but I can't wait for it to happen. That's what Paul's saying. In Romans chapter 8, a little bit earlier, Paul says that every one of us who has put our faith in Jesus has been adopted as sons and daughters of God, right? The Spirit of God marks us with an identity, all right? The Spirit of God says, okay, he's mine now, or she's mine now. They're my daughter. They're my son. And the Spirit marks us as saved and forgiven and as gods, all right? But the truth is, and Paul talks about that, and in fact, he mentions it here in this passage we just read, that we have not fully realized yet. We have not been fully, we have not fully realized the full power of our sonship because it hasn't been 100% completed yet. It's in process, but we haven't seen the full promise yet. And that is why we groan. So let's talk about that. Our hearts inwardly groan. When you groan, what are you doing? I mean, often it's a negative thing, right? We're saying like, when I groan about something, I'm feeling uneasy about it. Right? Or I'm feeling like there's something else I want instead. I'm feeling restless. I'm feeling unsatisfied. So like when it's a Monday morning and you're waking up your kids for school, you hear groaning. Why? Because they would rather not be going. They would rather sleep. There's something better on the other side of going to school. On Monday morning, when I wake up and I think about going to work, I groan. Now, you would think, man, don't you work for a church? Like, isn't that awesome? And I would have to say, how much time have you spent with Darren? <laughs> how much time have you spent with Chris or Andy, our student pastor? If you spent any time with him at all, you would understand my groaning on a Monday morning, okay? But we groan for something, right? We desire some. Here's the thing with Paul saying, that we all creation has groaned for something that hasn't happened yet. Because we know that there's something that should be that we haven't yet experienced. And that's why... ESPN and news anchors pray when a tragedy happens. That's why you see talk, talk, talk show hosts say we should pray when the tragedy happens. Because we know that there's something that we want to have happen that hasn't happened yet. We were made for something more. And that stirs inside of our hearts no matter what you believe about faith. It wasn't a coincidence, therefore, that when... 
in the first century church, let me tell you about this. When in the first century church, when the church was first born in its first hundred or two hundred years, that the, there was no coincidence that the Christians of that time were so generous towards the poor. They were so generous towards the poor. In, in Roman society, there were um, clubs that people belonged to. In fact, the, the, the upper class people belonged to clubs. They were all over them. They, they were called societies. And, and people bought their way into these clubs. They paid hefty dues. And to be part of this community, and these do, they paid these dues, they got something in return. They got lavish dinner banquets together. Um, they supported one another. In fact, funerals were very expensive at that, as that, at that time. So they would collect their funds, and the wealthy people would actually help fund each other's funerals. And it was a big deal to be part of a society. You were accepted. You were safe. Well, the Christians in the church blew that out of the water. They created a gathering of people that everybody was invited to. The poor were invited. And you didn't have to pay dues. It was free. In fact, the wealthy brought food and the poor brought the food they had and they shared in a meal together. They paid for each other's funerals so that the poor and the homeless and the beggars, they got funerals just like everybody else. And it was flipping society on its head. When plagues swept through the Roman world, it was the Christians who stayed behind in the city when everybody else fled, who, who nursed the sick and dying, and the Christians even gave their own lives as well to help the sick. Why? Why? C.S. Lewis, a 20th century author and Christian thinker, said it like this. He said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. You see, Christ followers have large today. The truth is, and I'm just speaking about my own heart too, we have ceased to think about the other world, about heaven, and that's why we've been so ineffective in this one. In fact, Lewis goes on to say, if you aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. We were made for heaven. And when we pray for one another, oftentimes we're caught up in, 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 in what's happening now. God, we just want it fixed, don't we? Fix what's happening now. We're asking God safe prayers that just say, God, could you just make things like they were, or can you just make things better the way that I think they should be? And from our vantage point, God, can you make things the way that I want them to be? And it's okay to pray those things. It's okay to pray. God wants to hear your heart, but we're missing out on a powerful aspect of prayer. When you pray for each other, you are participating, you and I, in a sacred rite that you are unleashing, think about this. When we pray for one another, this is what Paul's saying in Romans chapter eight. You are unleashing another kingdom that is congruently happening in this world undercover. You are literally praying for heaven for someone else. When you pray, when's the last time you've just prayed heaven for one another? When you do that, Paul says, you're inviting into the lives of people that you pray for, the very presence of heaven on earth. You're asking God in all his beauty and perfection that is occurring in heaven, you're asking God, could you bring a piece of that down here right now to occur in this person's life? You're at, when you pray for one another, you and I are to be lifting each other up out of, in, out of the present circumstance and say, God, this person is in this circumstance, but right now, Father, I'm asking you to send your spirit on them 
and begin to form in their heart right now the thing that prepares them for eternity. And when you pray for people like that, groaning for what not yet is happening, but will prepare their hearts for eternity, you will start to see eternal things flowing into and out of your life and theirs even now. Jesus said it when, when you pray. That's why he said, go into a closet, go into your room and close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Because what he, say, he says that is because what you're about to do is, is so holy, it's so sacred, it's so otherworldly. So, Jesus says, groan for it in anticipation when you pray. Unleash God's movements by praying for one another. So in Romans, in that same passage we read, Romans 8, 26 says, so the Spirit helps us in our weakness when we don't know what to pray. So let's talk about that. So, so you groan for heaven when you pray for one another, and that unleashes a power of God in their lives and in yours. The second thing is you, you admit your weakness. When we pray for one another, you admit you're weak. All right? Now, Paul clues us in on a stark contrast here between the Christian faith and other faith systems. He's, he's basically saying, listen, church, Christians, guys, God does not hear your prayers because you yelled louder, prayed more, or prayed harder, or sacrificed more, okay? Because that's the way of Hinduism. Hinduism um, and its prayers to, and its offerings to its idols and the promise of reincarnation is if you do better and try harder, things will get better for you later. That's the promise of Hinduism. That's the promise of Sharia law in Islam, if you follow these rules, if you do these things exactly, if you do them well, God will be pleased with you and he'll reward you later. When the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament of the Bible, when he is, has a standoff with the prophets of a God named Baal, these prophets of Baal are trying to get Baal's attention, and, and the Bible says that they start screaming, and they're yelling out to Baal. They start cutting themselves to bleed on their altars, all in hopes to get Baal's attention. And Elijah mocks them for trying to yell louder and do more and give more and sacrifice more in order to get Baal's attention. But Jesus talks about this in Matthew 26, too. He says, when you pray... Don't go out into the public square and pray like the religious leaders who just want all of the attention for themselves. He says, don't keep on babbling like, like other religions do to their gods, thinking that their many words or their fancy long prayers will capture more of God's attention. You see, when Christians pray, we pray through a power that we do not possess on our own. James chapter 5, verse 16, we read it at the beginning of the message. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So let me ask you this. Do you ever find yourself praying and you're not quite sure what to say? Like you just, you just don't know exactly what to say. Or maybe you're praying and you don't know exactly what to pray for. Like you know you want to pray and you've, and you've got some words that are coming out of that, but you don't really know what exactly it is you're supposed to be praying for. Or maybe you're praying for someone else. So we're talking praying for one another. Right? And you think you know what you should be praying for. In fact, often people will make it easy, they think, on you. 
Can you pray for me for this? So people will tell you what they want you to be praying for, but, but you, you find yourself, is that what I should be praying for? So how is my prayer powerful and effective, like James says in chapter five, if I don't even know what I'm supposed to be saying? And we get caught in that sometimes. What exactly should I be praying for? Remember, Romans chapter eight, verse 14 through 17. We didn't read it here, but I referenced it just a moment ago. We are sons and daughters of a really good dad in heaven. We've been adopted into, into sonship, into daughtership. Is daughtership a word? Daughterhood? I don't know. We're gonna, we're, I'm claiming it, all right? You've been adopted into that. You've been sealed and marked for eternity by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of God lives inside of us. That, that's, that's, re, that's a real thing. And you don't always know how to pray or what to say. But there's good news about that. The Holy Spirit, Paul says, intercedes for you. So when you're praying for one another, think about it like this. The Holy Spirit, what does the word intercede mean? It means to, um, to intervene on the behalf of another. So if the Spirit of God is living in you, then he knows the words you should be saying before you say them, and as you struggle to even say them at all. He knows what the words are. Okay? He knows what is needed. He knows what's best. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, actually takes your and my broken hearts, our, our wordless babbling, our struggle to come up with the right things, our heart that says, I don't know what to say. He takes our sinful, imperfect, kind of grumbling hearts, but our willing hearts, and he takes the things that you and I can't form into words, and the Holy Spirit translates it. And he turns it into words straight to the ear and the heart of God. And it begs, and he begs for a movement of God in your life and in the lives of the people you pray for. He takes what you can't say and he transforms it and translates it into a movement of God in your life. So when you pray for one another, this is what Paul says. When you pray for one another, don't assume that you know what the best outcome is. When you and I pray for one another, don't assume that the other person who asked you to pray for them, maybe they did, don't assume that they know what they really need you to pray for. When you pray for one another, go to God and say, I don't know what to say. Admit, to, admit your weakness. Admit that you, you and I, with our words, have really, aside from the spirit of God living in you, with our words alone, we have nothing to offer a timeless, perfect God. And when we can come to him and say, Father, I know that you're inside of me right now. You're stirring in me, but I don't know what to say. It's in that moment that you admit your weakness. That's when the effectiveness of your prayers unleashes his movement. Paul says, don't worry. The spirit intercedes for you with words that you could never come up with on your own. So you groan for heaven. When you're praying for one another, you're asking for heaven to invade their life. When you, when you pray for one another, you admit that you're weak. You don't know exactly what to say. You don't know what exactly what is best. You and I don't know when we're praying for one another, one another what exactly it is we should be praying for. But you go to the Spirit, and the Spirit translates what you don't know into something that will unleash God's power in your life and theirs. And here's the third thing. When you pray for one another, you want what God wants. You want what God wants. This is what he says in verse 27. 
the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. A bit later in Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to tell his readers to be transformed by the renewing of their minds so that they will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So Christianity, listen to me, listen, Christianity is not a mindless blind faith. Notice that Paul doesn't say, hey, when you pray, you just got to feel it. Notice Paul doesn't say, when he talks about your faith, he doesn't say, you just have some mystical experience and that's how you're going to know that God's listening. No, no, he says that faith is cerebral. It takes thinking. It takes your mind. All right? You have to explore and test the things of Christianity. So here's the thing. When you come to God, examine the evidence he's put before you in your life and through his word. When you pray for one another, read scripture. Test what God's words say. Pray for God to give you faith. Read his words. Learn to know his heart. Learn to know what he says. And when you do that, you will learn more and more all the time the mind and the heart of God, and then you'll find yourself praying for things that God loves most. So when you pray for one another, here's what Paul says. When you pray for one another, learn to pray what God wants. Now, it's not easy. All right, it's not often what we want. What God wants is not often what you and I would pray for. All right, sometimes it's the opposite. But learn to pray and trust it anyway. Learn to pray for what God wants and trust it anyway. If you tell a child not to eat a cookie before dinner or he'll spoil his appetite, that child doesn't yet have the mind that has been transformed to realize that he'll be too full to experience a feast later that is so much better than that cookie. See, Christianity shows us what we cannot know or do on our own. And that's the beauty of Paul's passage here. Christianity shows us what, we, what you could not know and what you and I cannot do on our own. Jesus gives to the Father what we were never able to give him on our own, or it would destroy us if we thought we could. When Jesus went to the cross, he groaned in the presence of God. If there is another way, right? In the garden, he said, if there's another way for me to do this, and do you know what happened when Jesus groaned? The Father turned his back on him. God couldn't look at the sin, when Jesus went to the cross, he knew and experienced ultimate weakness. Weakness where Jesus just said, Father, I've got nothing left to give you. Into your hands, I submit my spirit to you. I give you my whole self. Jesus did that. Ultimate weakness. On the cross, Jesus accomplished God's will perfectly. When he said, Father, forgive them for they have no idea what they're doing. See, the truth is, you and I need Jesus to intervene desperately. You and I need Jesus to intervene on our behalf and save us from ourselves. And in order to one another, well, in order to pray for one another that's powerful and effective and unleashes a movement of God in your life, we have to ask Jesus to intervene on our behalf to offer to God the things that we never could. 
when you were wordless, desperate and searching, God unleashed a movement of grace and forgiveness into your life because he wanted to. So if you've never accepted that love from a good heavenly father in your life, I encourage you to email us through our website and, and, and ask us and tell us that you would want to talk to somebody about baptism because we would love to talk to you about baptism, about, about you just surrendering your belief, your mind, your heart to Jesus and letting his grace just wash over you. We would love to talk to you about that. If you're online right now, maybe you've been with us in the last couple of weeks, go to thewocc.com slash one another. Okay, wcc.com slash one another. Go to that site, and, and, and I want to continue a challenge we've been giving you for the last couple weeks. There you'll see some one another challenges. One another challenges, simple, doable, but profound ways that you can take on a challenge this week in order to reach out to someone and bless them, to, to be generous to them, to, to pray for them, to serve them in some way. You'll see the challenges. Go and take one. You won't be sorry that you did. When we pray for one another, we unleash a movement of God in each other's lives. Pray for me, or with me, rather. You can't pray for me, but pray with me. God, um, we want what you want. I say that over and again by your Holy Spirit that is stirring in my life right now. God, I, I know you're here. And Father, against all of my wishes and against my will and against what I want, Father, I pray from my heart to yours that we want what you want. Whatever is that you want in my life, in this church, for my family, for our communities, Father, we want what you want. Would you pour heaven down on earth? Would you form in us the things that you would have for us for eternity that will prepare our hearts for eternity forever with you? Do them now, Father. All we have to offer you is all the things that Jesus did because I can't. And I thank you for that, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.